My name's Brad Heron. My name's Autumn Heron. And this is Our Duality. My mom and dad, they, you know, they were both uh, very sheltered from small towns. Um, my dad, you know, he, he loved the Lord with all his heart and was trying his hardest to, to raise his family as, as the best that he knew how. Uh, whenever my dad was 25 years old, he was called into the ministry and he took his whole entire family back to Bible school to become a preacher. And my dad was immediately taken on at a pastoral role. He ended up taking over the Christian school and um, getting the church Christian school accredited. And then he really felt like God was calling him to go take over another church. So we moved to Booker and my dad took over this church, uh, grew a church of about 50 into a church of about 400 in about two years. And things were going well ministry-wise for my dad. I was a mess though, I was a wreck. Um, I'd been called into the ministry whenever I was young in seventh grade. I knew what I was put on this earth to do, and I didn't really want anything to do with it. After seeing what my dad had had to go through with the church, uh, the things that, that he had had to put up with, just the lies and the manipulating that people had done to try to get their way or to get him to perform in a certain way, um, I didn't want anything to do with it, and I ran from God hard. And the school that I went to, whenever we moved to Booker, had instated a new policy that if you were involved in any extracurricular activities, you had to submit yourself for random drug analysis. In my way of thinking is the only time they'll drug test you is during the times that you're playing sports. And so when football season was over, I remember going to a party on a Friday night, and there was a young man there that told me he had some marijuana, asked if, he had, if I would like to smoke some. And I did, and didn't really think much about it until Monday morning whenever I was sitting in fourth period English class and my name came over the loudspeaker. I knew I was dirty. So I started to go through every way in my mind that I thought that I could not have to pay the consequences for the choices that I'd made on that Friday night. I did my business in the cup, took it back to the principal, and uh, three days later I got the phone call. So that meant no more football, Brad, for me. I went into probably the deepest, darkest depression I've ever been in in my life at that point. I felt like I'd failed everybody, I'd let everybody down. All I did was wrong. Everything I did was wrong, and there was somebody there to tell me. And finally, one day, I went and looked up my cousin after he got out of prison. I walk into his trailer house, and he's sitting there with a big table of white powder sitting in front of him. And I knew what it was. I'd never done meth before, but I, I knew I knew what it was. I wasn't a dumb kid. And he looks at me and he says, Brad, do you want to try this stuff? I remember thinking, I'll just try it once. I'll just see what it's like. I won't become that guy. I went from a young man that cared about my family, who cared about my friends, that, that wanted to do well in life, that wanted to succeed. And I turned into a young man that didn't care about anything but myself. I didn't care about anything but my next fix. By this time, my cousin had showed me how to manufacture methamphetamines and I became a meth cook at the age of 17. I ended up getting kicked out of high school my senior year on drug charges and had to go to an alternative school. I walked away from everything. Ended up moving into a little flea bag hotel motel apartment in Liberal, Kansas. 
On January 7th, 2003, I was sitting in my little apartment. It was gonna sleep that night. I'd been up for meth about two days. I'd went to, I was just getting ready to go to sleep. I just got off the phone with my dad. And my dad knew that I was messed up on drugs. And my dad hangs up the phone with my mom and he looks at my mom and he, he says, we have to pray, Donna. And my mom looks at my dad and says, what do we pray, Butch? We prayed everything. And he says, we haven't prayed this. He said, Lord Jesus, you could be a better father to my son than I could ever be. Lord God, my son knows the call that you have on his life. He knows what he's to be about in this life. He knows your ways. He knows your truth. And he's running from me right now. But Lord God, we know that you can do all things. And whatever it takes in our son's life to come back to you, let it be done in Jesus' name. Probably no more than four hours later, I was sitting in the middle of a field with an 8x10 Pyrex dish sitting in my lap with 24 ounces of ether in it, starting fluid. A highly, highly, highly flammable substance. The mere vapor of this substance could combust with just a single spark. And I had 24 ounces of it sitting in my lap in an 8x10 brownie pan. The young man that was with me that night, he decided he needed a cigarette. And he lit that cigarette. In the blink of an eye, in the flick of a lighter, my life changed dramatically. I was raised totally different than my husband. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I wasn't raised to go to church every Sunday or Wednesday. Um, My folks basically just went on certain holidays. And my mom and dad raised my sister and I the best way they knew how. Growing up, It was hard. We didn't have a lot of money growing up. When I was nine years old, my parents couldn't work out their marital problems, and my parents divorced. And that was really hard for me as a nine-year-old girl, because to me, I saw two perfect people crumble. I believe that's when my insecurity started. I kind of put on a or kind of put up a wall so people wouldn't see the imperfections. And I wanted to be good at everything. I wanted to make my parents proud. Even though I didn't really have the Lord in my life, I always wanted to do good. And I remember six months before my accident, my best friend asked me, um, do you want to go to church with me? And I remember going and just feeling this overwhelmed welcome, like everything was going to be okay, whatever that may be or whatever that was. And I remember going down to the altar with her and I just said, you know, God, please just make yourself real to me. God, I want to do something for you. I want to have a purpose. I I don't want to just be an ordinary person. I want to have a purpose in life. On January 28, 2000, 
I remember running to get to class because we could not be late. Never knowing that this would be the day my life would fully change. Our teacher wanted to go over an experiment and he said, I want to show you the different colors of flame and I'm going to lay six Petri dishes out on a table. Each Petri dish has a different color crystal and when you pour methanol on it and you light it, it shows a different color of flame. And I remember him going over the experiment. Um, we were very close. We were only six feet in front of the table that he was doing the experiment on. Well, he got all the Petri dishes lit and he was showing us a different color of flame and he asked us to stand up and look at this, these flames through a prism. And I was returning back to my seat when he said, I want to go over it again. Methanol burns clear. It burns hotter than gasoline. And he didn't know that first Petri dish was lit. And so he took a whole gallon jug and he proceeded to pour on that first Petri dish. And that flame sucked into that gallon jug and it shot it out like a cannon hitting me directly in the face. We drove down this road that evening, late, probably about one o'clock in the morning. And as we were driving down the road, I remember not having a worry in my mind. I knew it was a nice secluded spot. We didn't have to worry about anybody coming up and, and uh, finding us there as we were manufacturing the drug. You know, we were inside the vehicle. It was 17 degrees out that night. So we had the windows in the vehicle just cracked about this much, about two inches, just enough to let the fumes ventilate out of the windows. As soon as he hit the ignition on that lighter, that pan that I was holding in front of me just went Whoo! It didn't explode like a lot of people think. There was just enough ether vapor that had built up inside of the, in my El Camino that we were in at that moment that it allowed the ether vapor to vaporize or to combust, but it caught the top layer of the pan that I was holding, the top ether layer on fire. So I was holding it out in front of me and it was catching the headliner on fire inside of my vehicle. And I looked over at my friend that was with me and I said, get out, get out, get out, get out. And he jumped out of the passenger side. Once he jumped out, I just tried to throw the pan out after him. But whenever I threw the pan, all that ether combusted and there was such an explosion and such a combustion at that moment that it slammed the doors back shut on the vehicle. Now I was entombed, I was encased with fire. I grabbed the door handle and I tried to open with all my might, but I couldn't open up the door. It was getting hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter and I just wanted it to stop. And I remember laying my head back in the seat, opening up my eyes, looking at the rearview mirror and taking a breath, thinking it would just all be over with. And at that moment, my spirit left my body. It dropped down through the floorboards of my vehicle, down into a jail cell in the belly of the earth. It's hard for me to describe this place to a person because everything that we see around us is God's fingerprints, has God's fingerprints all over it. The colors in the trees in the fall when they're changing, the blooms of a flower whenever it's coming out. I mean, this is life, this is creation, this is God. 
This place was absent from God. God was not in this place. So everything was abstract and obtuse. The smell of oxygen had been replaced with the smell of sulfur. There were flames that were touching my skin, but that wasn't even the worst part of this place. The worst part was the regret that I was experiencing because I had knew that I had chosen this. I had chosen to reject God. I had chosen to walk away from God. I had chosen to live in my own selfish ways. And now I was reaping the consequences for my choices. I said, wait a second, God, I can't be dead. Wait a second, God, I can't be in hell. You told me when I was in seventh grade that I was going to see millions of people's lives changed by the truth of my testimony, that I was going to see millions of people run to the altar of salvation by the words that you speak through me. I can't be in hell. I can't be dead, God. And no sooner than I made that conscious thought, the doors to my vehicle opened up. I hit the ground, and the first words I said was, God, help me. And at that very moment, I had an overwhelming peace come over me that I was going to be okay. I was going to live, but I still knew it was going to be a long road. I walked about 100 yards away from my vehicle, about to where the field line is, and I laid down and watched my vehicle burn to the ground. The guy I was with, he left me out there. I laid in the middle of that field for four and a half hours. He had eventually made it 18 miles back into town to his house and told his wife that I was dead. And she drove out there just to see if I was alive or not. And I saw the headlights coming down and I stood up and I ran over to her. I went and sat down on the passenger side of that vehicle. And I told her, I said, let's go. We got to go to the hospital. Turn on the heater. I'm cold. I'm cold. And she turned on the heater. And as the heater from the heater vents hit me, I remember all my skin start to tighten up like tan leather. And it was getting real hard to breathe. They life-flighted me from Liberal, Kansas to the Via Christi St. Francis Burn Center in Wichita, Kansas, where I was put into a four-month drug-induced coma. I was given less than one-tenth of one percent chance to live. But I inhaled the flames down my throat and into my lungs, and that even took away my one percent chance to live. And my body started to produce an overwhelming amount of calcium but I was in such a fragile state, they couldn't move me. And so my legs were straight out, my arms were straight out, and my, the calcium started to lay inside my joints. They would literally have to break the bone inside of my joints. Finally, after a month of this, I was just, I was done. I didn't know if I'd live through that. And they let me go home. And I remember one day I'm sitting in the shower, my dad was just letting me soak in there for a little bit to get all my dressings and everything loosened up so we could start dressing changes. And uh, he comes walking into the bathroom and I said, Dad, I'm pathetic. I said, Dad, don't you realize that even if I wanted to kill myself right now, I couldn't? And literally, I couldn't have. And after that conversation with my dad in that shower room that night, every morning he would come in and read Jeremiah 29, 11 over me. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans not to harm you but plans to give you a hope and a future. And he first started reading that to me and I would get mad. I mean, I didn't even want to hear it. And then he bought a video camera too. <laughs> and he videotaped me for six weeks straight, every therapy session that I went to. 
And after about six weeks of it, we were sitting in the living room one evening, and he walks in and he puts this VHS tape into the VCR. I know I'm dating myself a little bit there, guys. And he hits play. And at the beginning of the of, of, of the video, it's where I was at that first week he started videotaping me. I couldn't even walk five steps on my own. Well, then it goes to the second week and I'm walking 10 steps. It goes to the third week, I'm walking all the way around. And sixth week, finally, I'm, you know, I'm walking all around that place unassisted. And I realized I am getting better. When the accident happened, um, the halls were filling with the smell of burnt flesh or burnt hair. And a lot of people were noticing something was happening. Something happened. I really, at first, didn't, couldn't believe what just happened. Um, the kid next to me, he knocked me over and he said, Autumn, don't scream. I'm going to go get help. And I remember laying there like, you know, God, this can't be it. This, this can't be the end of my life. And I remember getting really scared. And I heard his voice for the first time saying, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And it's almost like I had a peace over me that everything was going to be okay. And finally, the teacher got to me and that young man that told me not to scream. And I said, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And they pulled the blanket off and I went up again and they put me out for the second time. And they laid me down and all I could feel were my hands. And I remember laying there and the teacher saying, Autumn, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And that kid next to me, Autumn, you're gonna be okay, you're gonna be okay. And one of the young girls came into the room and she came directly towards me like this, looking at me. And she said, oh my gosh, Autumn, your face. Then I knew I was bad. And I remember looking at my body and looking at my flesh and it just rolling off. And I remember seeing my hands and all the skin coming off. And I, I couldn't believe what was happening. And they pulled me into the ambulance. And I remember them talking to me and saying, Autumn, um, how old are you? And I said, I'm only 17. They were trying to talk trying to keep me, but my body was going into shock, and I went out. And when they brought my mom into the room for the first time to see me, she couldn't believe that this was me. And she asked to see my chart twice. Or my dad and my sister walked into the room, and my stepdad said it was like dominoes. They all fell to their knees. And there was no helicopters available at the time because they were all being used. So they escorted me. And right away, I went into major surgery at the second hospital. I got a really bad infection. One of my arms wasn't taking my graft, and my temp went up. And right before I woke up, I remember seeing a big light in my room. This little girl comes into my room, and she was telling me, come on, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. And I looked at her and I said, what are you doing in my room? Like, get out of here. I was so mad at her. And she started pulling off my bandages. And she said, come on, come on, let's go, let's go. 
and she kept getting louder and louder and she started pulling more and more off of me. And I got to one point where I was so mad at her, I stopped when I looked at her because I noticed she wasn't standing, she was floating. And then I kind of understood what she was. And I said, I can't go. And she's like, yes, you can. Come on, come on, let's go. And I remember telling her no and no, and the light got smaller and smaller. And then I woke up. I knew I was burned, but I didn't know how bad I was. And I remember waking up and feeling the pain. And I can't even describe to you how bad a burn feels. And I remember them wheeling me down for the first shower. And I told the nurse, I, I, I want to see a mirror. And she said, okay, hold on. And I remember looking in the mirror for the first time, sitting in the wheelchair. And I remember that everything that I thought that had once made up my identity was gone. We were just walking through a high school and came upon an article, and the article is actually me. Um, he has this in his physics class to show to kids what could happen. Yeah, this kind of was a, a little bit of a dark time, but moving in the right direction. And uh, that's crazy. I didn't know how to cope with being burned. I just wanted to feel normal again. Why did this happen? Why? And so my aunt just, the aunt she is, she just called around and tried to get me into a good place to get some help. It was a Christian place actually here in Michigan. We get in the car and my dad and my stepdad are sitting on both sides and we pull up and I said, wow, this is a big rest stop. And uh, my dad said, uh, nope, this is a place for you to get help. And the only way you're gonna do this is if you get some help, but you gotta have God along the way. And my dad, not even being a Christian, knew that the only way to get over this and through this is with Jesus Christ. And I stayed there for a month and got some real help. And it wasn't too long after that I realized, you know, no longer did I want my identity to be of this world. I wanted my identity to be in Christ. This is the best thing that ever happened to me in my whole entire life. The reason I say that is it allowed me to meet my wife, Autumn. And we met in North Carolina at what's called a World Burn Congress. And uh, the World Burn is basically a place that burn survivors can go to and meet other people that are burned as well as meet, you know, see the latest and greatest things that are out there for burns and all this kind of stuff. And uh, Autumn was actually on the board of trustees for that nonprofit organization. And Autumn and I got paired up in a group with one another. And she, uh, I looked at her and I said, Autumn, how did you get burned? And she said, well, I got burned in a chemistry lab explosion in high school. And she goes, Brad, how did you get burned? And I said, well, in a chemistry lab explosion in my El Camino. And uh, I guess it was a pretty good line because 
you know, she hasn't been able to get rid of me ever since. This was not only the best thing where I got to meet my husband, but I found out who I was in Christ. I found out who he was and how to live my life. God didn't cause this to happen, but he allowed it because he knew what good was gonna come out of it. He knew he could trust me with these scars. And I know that I may be wearing somebody else's mistake for the rest of my life, but what is Jesus wearing for us? All our mistakes. And if he can wear it, I definitely can wear it. Well, let me hasten to conclude because I gotta tell you, I brought a gift for you. I have a gift in the form of a young man. He never served in Iraq or Afghanistan, but he's my leading warrior in the war on terror, the terror of drugs. And you're gonna meet one of the most profound, wonderful young men in America who's speaking in schools all over this country. Would you welcome, for the few minutes we have left, would you welcome Brad Heron? Come out here, Bradley. September 11th, 2007, I was blessed enough to be called by Dave Reaver to go through the Eagle Summit Ranch program that he has going on in Colorado. I would, I would go last every time we'd go and, and do these tours and go out and speak. And uh, I would start it off by saying, you know, my name's Brad Heron. I wasn't burned in an honorable way. I wasn't burned in a tragic house fire. I wasn't burned in a war in Iraq or in Afghanistan. I wasn't even burned in a car accident. I was burned at the age of 19 in a dishonorable way manufacturing methamphetamines. The doors and the opportunities that God has opened up for Autumn and I, have, it, it blows my mind. God looks at our hearts. And he will, if, as long as our heart is tender to him and it's fertile ground for him to sow into, he can change our worst tragedy and turn it into our biggest triumph in life every single time. And he took everything bad in Brad's and everything bad in mine and made something beautiful out of it. Not only did he bring us together, but just the lives that we get to change and just the tool we get to be for God's glory. The opportunities, the, the places that God's allowed us to go, to speak to, the, the people that we've got to meet and send to rehabs across the country and see their lives absolutely transformed and changed. Our heart is to really get into the schools. And, you know, Brad and I are both fighting a war. My husband's fighting the war on drugs and I'm fighting the war on image. And together, when we walk into a high school, they listen to what we say. Because they know, know we've been there. Brad always talks about choices and consequences, and I hit him with image. And if we can help one of those kids to not have to go down the road that Brad has, if we can help one of those kids not have to think that it's what you look like to be accepted, then we will proudly wear our scars. We are living in a time that people are pretty hopeless. And that hope only comes from one place, guys. I mean, Dave Reaver says it best. There's a million ways to be hurt in this life, but there's only one place to be healed, and his name is Jesus. And that's where our hope truly comes from, is from Jesus.